Michael 1, beginning at verse 1. Let's hear the word of the Spirit. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that's in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him. And the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down on a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I'll pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, all her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail, I'll go stripped and naked. I'll make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. In Bethlehem, roll yourself in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shaphir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zalon do not come out. The lamentation of Bethazel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Moroth wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was in the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Moresheth Gath. The houses of Axbeeb shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Marishah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bold and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bold as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Let's pray. Our Father, all scripture is breathed out by your spirit. And so we pray that same spirit now would it enlighten our minds and enable our hearts to accept to rejoice, uh, to delight in uh, what you have to say to us. Uh, Awaken us, we pray, Holy Spirit, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, One of the biggest stories of last year was Greta Thunberg, uh, the climate change activist. Uh, And perhaps the most startling of all her work was her speech at the UN Climate Change uh, Summit. Uh, You might have seen it. Uh, Perhaps the most famous line for it was when she she looked out from stage and said, how dare you? You've stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words, and yet I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering, people are dying, entire ecosystems are collapsing, we're in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? You are failing us but the young people are starting to understand your betrayal. 
The eyes of all future generations are upon you. And if you choose to fail us, I say we will never forgive you. We will not let you get away with this. Right here, right now, is where we draw the line. Change is coming whether you like it or not. If you've seen the speech, it's unsettling. What I think is fascinating, and the reason I start with her this morning, is I think Greta Thunberg is the closest thing you or I will see in our lifetimes to, to an Old Testament prophet. Now, she's clearly secular, uh, not Christian. I don't know what her faith is, but she's not proclaiming a Christian gospel. But in terms of the, both the content of what she says and the way she says it, I think that's the closest we're going to get to seeing the kind of experience we would have from meeting one of these Old Testament prophets. Uh, the way she, she structures her speech is very like, well, frankly, it's very like Micah, already Isaiah, Micah's contemporary. He begins with the evidence, or she began with the evidence, says the, the rejection of the science that is perfectly clear, says Greta. Or so to Micah. God has been perfectly clear how you should live. But then there's the accusation. Hey, you world leaders, you've failed to reduce emissions. You've failed to cut down on fossil fuels. Despite the evidence, you, you've gone against it. So to Micah. And therefore, judgment is coming. For Greater Thunberg and the environmental movement, it's, well, it's ice caps melting, it's global warming, it's catastrophe on the horizon. Of course, for Micah, it is the great coming day of the Lord. But it's not just the content, it's even the tone. If you've seen the videos, there's something uncomfortable about it. You couldn't have been in that room and, and, and left unmoved. You might have been angry and disagreed. You might have been sort of whooping and hollering, as some people were, and agreeing. But you couldn't really be neutral. Uh, the way she speaks, it's, it's provocative, it's disturbing. I think it would have been the same with Micah as he wandered around Jerusalem preaching some 700 years or so before Christ. Of course, with Micah, what we get is not the words of a 16-year-old girl. They're not even the words of a middle-aged Jewish man. They are, verse 1, the words of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to Micah. As we study a book that is in a part of the Bible that we probably know less well, the Old Testament prophets are well, they're difficult to get a grip on at times. We need to remember this is the same word of the Lord that we read in Matthew's Gospel or Romans or indeed in the Psalms. It is the same Holy Spirit who gave Micah these words. Uh, we mustn't put a dividing line between Old and New Testaments. The things we learn about God in the Old are just as true now. Uh, God does not change. And the significance of that is found in his name, Micah. The word of the Lord came to Micah. Uh, names have meanings. Uh, we don't tend to think like that, do we? My sister's called Elizabeth. I looked it up. It means that the Lord provides abundantly. I don't think my parents knew that's what it meant. I hope they didn't know what our names were, because my name, James, means deceiver. <laughs> so I hope it doesn't, <laughs> I hope it wasn't chosen. But we, we don't think about it. But, it. but in the days of Israel, they, they definitely thought about it. Names meant something. And Micah means, who is like Yahweh? Who is like the Lord? So, so as we read the book of Micah, first of all, that, first and foremost, in fact, that's going to be the question that, that will, if you like, guide us through the book. Who is like Yahweh? Who is like the Lord? If you just flick to the end of the book, chapter 7, you'll see this isn't, isn't just a bit of wordplay that some clever scholar has thought up. 
at the end of chapter 7, verse 18, that last little section, we read verse 18 of chapter 7. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? Who is like you? Micah is asking us a question. In, in other words, what is Yahweh really like? What is God really like? Yahweh, that the Lord, as it's written in those capital letters there, was God's covenant name, the name he particularly gave to his people. You'll find all sorts of names for God in the Old Testament. Sometimes it's God Almighty, talking about his power. But, but here, this is the name of God as he binds himself to his people, a bit like a marriage ceremony where you can share the name. This is his personal name. And as the Bible story goes on, of course, we, well, we get a new name, don't we? As we get to the New Testament, we, we find that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we meet God through Jesus. So in some ways, this book is, who is, who is Jesus? What's he actually like? And that might sound like a question we've got an easy answer to if we've been around church for a while. Well, we know, you know he's God, he's man, he's kind, he's loving. But what we need to remember is Micah was preaching to Christians, in inverted commas. He was preaching to Jews, obviously, but he was preaching to people who would, who would say they believed in God. He's not going off to the Egyptians or the Ethiopians, uh, to the Greeks and the Romans. He's preaching to people who knew about the temple, who knew the Old Testament, and yet somehow had lost sight of what God was really like. That is all too easy in church. In fact, it's particularly in church that we can be led astray and start having wrong understandings of what God is actually like, what Jesus is actually like. Because frankly, it's only in church that we talk about Jesus. No one has led more people astray. No one has covered up the true Jesus better than the church, broadly speaking. So who is like Yahweh? What is God like? What is Christ really like? But instead of a question mark, we could also put an exclamation mark after Micah's name. Part, part of the, 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 the meaning of his name is, is an exclamation. Who is like, how great is God? So we won't, I hope, over the next few weeks, just be thinking, what is he like? But we'll be led to praise as a response of it. And then finally, at a secondary level, I suppose, the question is, is meant to challenge us. Who is like Yahweh? As Micah preaches to, to the, the crowds in Jerusalem, perhaps, who is actually God-like? Who is like our God? Which of you are true images? Israel was called to be a kingdom of priests. They were meant to reflect God's glory to the world. Which of you is like the real God, says Micah? And again, that's a challenge for us. It's only as we see God clearly that we'll be able to reflect him rightly to the world. So again, uh, please pray that what this book will do for us, or what the Lord will do for us through this book, is make us better images of the Lord our God. Uh, Micah's uh, book is, is really three speeches. He is given a vision. Uh, you can see that in verse one. Uh, the word of the Lord, which he saw. Strange, isn't it? How do you see a word? Prophets, it seems, sometimes were, were given these sort of visions, these revelations, as if they were brought into God's council chamber as he, as, he, as he sometimes speaks, as he does in the Old Testament with the angels, the heavenly beings. It, it, Micah sees that, but we're not going to see. For us, the command comes three times in the book, and it is here, verse 2, hear you peoples, all of you. The beginning of chapter 1, beginning of chapter 3, and the beginning of chapter 6. Each time, hear, hear, hear. Three speeches. They have the same pattern. They begin in judgment and then move to hope. 
So today I, I really want to just do one thing with chapter one, and that is, we'll see one picture of God, one truth about God that Michael wants us to know, and then we'll reflect a little about what it means for our lives. And it's very simple. Uh, Micah wants the people of Jerusalem to know this, wants us to know this morning, God is bigger than you realise and he's coming to judge. He's bigger than you realise and he's coming to judge. That is Micah's main message. Uh, Micah isn't a, a book like Romans where you sort of can move carefully through it and an argument is built. He paints pictures all over the place. It's, it's choppy in a sense. Uh, but that the size, the immensity of God and the fact he's coming to judge is the clear theme of chapter one. Uh, if you look down with me at verse two, the end of verse two, uh, the Lord is, it, is coming, the Lord God is coming to be a witness against you. Verse three, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and what will happen? They will melt. The mountains will melt under him. The valleys will split open. Have you seen those, those movies, I don't know children, have you ever seen a movie where there's some sort of monster something coming maybe or a you know, giant or something and, and the, the earth begins to tremble. You hear the footprints, boom, boom, boom and the coffee cups tremble and the, 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 the glass begins to go in the windows. It seems to be in all the kind of those movies and you know that whatever is coming is massive. Well, that's what's coming here. God puts his feet on the earth and the mountains shatter like glass. The valleys crumple like they're, they're paper mache. In the same way as if you put your foot on a sandcastle, it goes straight through. God can do that with the Himalayas, the Andes, the Rockies. They just turn to slush. Michael wants us to have a huge vision of God uh, rather than a, a tiny domesticated uh, saviour. At the moment, uh, I've got uh, the interns here reading uh, books on the doctrine of God. And if you ever read a book on the doctrine of God, uh, often they'll talk about um, attributes of God. Talk, well, God is omnipresent. You know, he's everywhere. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He's omnipotent. He can do all things. All these words. But, but the Bible doesn't use language like that. I mean, there's good books. Keep reading. <laughs> They're good books. It's helpful language. But the Bible paints pictures more often. God is a mountain smasher, a, a valley crusher. And he's coming to judge. And we need to know a little bit of history in order to understand what Micah is on about. Micah is about 700 years BC, probably about 735 to 700 BC-ish. He doesn't give us exact dates. And about 200 years before that, the kingdom of Israel, God's people, had been split in two. Um, when, when David was king, there was one king over the 12 tribes in Jerusalem. But, but under his grandson, the kingdom split into two kingdoms, Samaria in the north and Judah in the south. Uh, in a way, you could picture it like Great Britain, the island, uh, with England at the bottom and Scotland up north. Uh, and the, the, the true king was in, was in England. Sorry, this is where the, the illustration... Don't take offence, Scots. Um, and the, the northern kingdom, that had got a lot, lot worse. Yeah, maybe. Um, that, that's where it had all gone badly wrong. That is Samaria. Uh, the three kings that, that, that Micah mentions Jude, uh, in verse 1, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, uh, they were kings in Jerusalem. Okay, the true kings, Jesus' bloodline, they'll be in that genealogy uh, that we meet in the New Testament. And that's where Micah prophesies. But, but as someone reading Micah's book, they wouldn't just be thinking, oh, right, okay, when was Hezekiah? What were his dates? No, those three names would mean something to them. If I said to you, in the days of Winston Churchill, King George VI, and General Montgomery, 
you would probably all of you be thinking about something, hopefully. If you're not, you need to go back to do your history lessons. <laughs> a few nervous faces, I won't ask why. Um, you're probably not thinking, well, what were George VI dates? How many terms in Parliament did Winston Churchill have? What, what are they famous for? They're famous for World War II. Okay, so we know we're in the era of World War II. It's similarly, with these three kings, we're in the era of the Assyrian Empire. This huge country called Assyria dominating everybody. And they are the ones, ultimately, who are going to come and carry out this judgment against God's people. He's going to send his empire in to crush his people. Uh, so in verse 6 and 7, Samaria, okay, that's the northern kingdom, Scotland, they're going to be crushed. It's going to become a place of planting vineyards, turn into farmland, stones thrown down, utterly destroyed. And ultimately, uh, that's what happened. Uh, the Assyrians came in and over a number of years destroyed Samaria. And at this stage, the, the, the people in the south, okay, the people in Judah, in Jerusalem, will be listening to Micah thinking, huh, yeah, well, they should never have broken away, should they? Okay, should never have voted to leave. Uh, serves them right. And then the screw tightens. Verse 8, Micah begins to lament and wail. Why? Because this wound, this sin, verse 9, has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem. This enemy, Assyria, is going to come to the south as well. God's judgment is going to come to Judah, even to the gates of Jerusalem. And in verses 10 through 16, all these towns that are, that are hard to pronounce. Uh, Micah is it's kind of wordplay. It's hard to tell as we read in English. But if you look at verse 10, for example, in Bethlehaphra, roll yourself in the dust. Bethlehaphra, so the Hebrew scholars tell us, means dust town. Imagine a town called Dustin. And Micah says it's turned to dust. It's sort of, and I, I don't want to do this in a kind of corny way, but it's something like Nottingham will become Nottingham. Bath will be bathed in blood. Leeds will be led away into exile. They're kind of puns on the names of the towns down in Judah. And what's going to end up with? Well, verse 16, exile. They'll be taken away. So our big question that, that dominates the book, who is like God, or what is God like, what is Yahweh like, is not going to give us comfortable answers. But reading Micah is like, it's like stepping out of a cosy cottage on a blustery day and being hit in the face by the wind and the spray from the waves, and almost slapped around the face to be woken up. God is a God who is mighty, far bigger than we think, and is coming in judgment. And if we were to say, well, I, I don't like that, that's not my picture of God. Imagine what, imagine what Greta Thunberg would say if he said, well, I, I don't like the idea of global warming, so I'm just going to ignore it. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what you like, it's true. And it's as true now as it was in Micah's day. Uh, I wonder, I wonder if we have domesticated Jesus, shrunk him, made him cosier and tidier, uh, taken away some of the, the wildness, we might even say, the awe, the majesty. Who is like Yahweh? Who is like Christ? It, 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 at Christmas, I, I once or twice went to some services elsewhere, not in Leeds, and um, pe people talk about the Christ child. It seems to be a a sort of phrase that comes out of Christmas. The, come and worship the Christ child. I think, well, I do know what it means, but I, it, 
And, it, and it's, it's almost if Jesus is just there in the manger. We leave him in the manger. He's just some cute baby. But that's where he stays. Or even if we move on a few years into his ministry, and we like the pictures of, remember a church they used to go to down in Derby where they've got a picture on the wall of Jesus, probably not a good start, but anyway, Jesus with children sitting on his knee. And he's kind of cosy, friendly, you know, your favourite uncle or godfather. But what about the Jesus of Revelation? Come with me to right to the end of the Bible. Revelation chapter 1. Jesus is bigger than we think. Revelation chapter 1. And verse 12. John sees Jesus. And Jesus has now died, risen, gone to heaven, and he gets a vision of Jesus. Verse 12 of Revelation 1, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, there's Jesus. And children, can you hear what he's, hear what he's wearing? Clothed with a long robe and with a gold sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When, when John, his disciple John, sees Jesus, what does he do? Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He's terrified. Bang, down he went. Okay, we know Jesus literally hasn't got a sword coming out of his mouth. Okay, it's, it's, it's not a literal picture of that. But he's trying to get across the scale, the power, the majesty of Jesus enthroned on high. He is a bigger figure uh, than we dare dream. And if you just come on in Revelation 14, to Revelation 14, sorry, Jesus is not just bigger than we think, he's also coming back to judge. I'm sorry for the paper trail, but Revelation 14 uh, we, we see Jesus, or Jesus judging. Verse 9, another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Okay, if, anyone, if anyone doesn't worship Christ, okay, rejects Christ and, and lives for themselves, for Satan, they, they drink the kind of God's cup of God's wrath. But look how it goes on. And he'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. The presence of the Lamb has a picture of hell. And Jesus is there reigning over it in judgment. Jesus will come back to judge all those who haven't come to him for mercy. And the pictures, there we went to one, we could have gone to several in the New Testament. The, t- the pictures are terrifying. Uh, Michael will show us that it's, it's not just the world that lost sight of the majesty, uh, the might of God. It's the church. I wonder if the ch- in a church we've just lost sight because we don't want to look at the might, the majesty of Christ, the fact that he will return, that justice and judgment will be done. How are we to react? Well, two ways. Michael turns our attention to two things. First of all, to weeping. 
Look at verse 8 and 9. When Micah proclaims this judgment, sorry, we're back in the book of Micah. You're going to get good at finding it. 776. Page 776, Micah 1. Verse 8 and 9, when Micah proclaims judgment, what is, how does he react? Is he triumphalistic? Well, look, I'm the one who knows the truth. I've got mercy and you're going to get it. Is he walking up and down with a billboard shouting, you're all going to hell? Well, no. For this I, this is I, Micah, will lament and wail. I'll go stripped and naked. I'll make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. He's shrieking like an ostrich. Have you ever heard an ostrich shriek? No, neither have I. No idea, but it, it must be terrible, okay? I don't want to hear an ostrich. A jackal, he's got a wild dog shrieking. Micah is torn apart in grief because of what is coming to those who've rejected Yahweh. And in that long poem, I said, with all these sort of puns, Nottingham is Nottingham, leads be led away, that sort of thing. It, well, it's, inter- it's interesting. Now, I said earlier there's this word play, and there is. And again, the, the Hebrew, the Hebrew sort of scholars, of whom I am definitely not one, say that actually it's, it's a complete mess. Verses 10 through 16 is a complete mess. If, 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 if you sort of into language in general, the kind of verbs don't agree with their subjects, and the adjectives go sort of all over the place and don't agree. And it, it's, it, it, it's grammatically chaos. It's something like, you know, Micah says something like, Nottingham are now Nottingham. And we say, no, not Nottingham are now. It's Nottingham is now, Micah. Bath, it had been bathed in blood. No, it's, it has been, Micah. Leads will be leaded away. No, the past participle of leads led. But, 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 the, but the point is not that Micah has made a mistake. It's that he's so frenzied, he's so overwhelmed that he can't get his words right. It just pours out of him. You leads are going to be leaded away to judgment. And, and, and we come to him and say, well, tidy up your language, Micah. But no, because he feels it. He sees the might of God. He sees the scale of the God who is coming towards him as the footsteps thump on the ground. And and he can hardly speak. Even a prophet of the Lord can hardly speak. And we come to him as as good conservative evangelicals. Ah, Micah, yes, the doctrine of the second coming. Quite agree. Tell me more. What's your main point of your book? Tell me the structure. How are you breaking down chapter one? What are your headings? And, and he's almost screamed, but just put the notebooks away, I don't care. God is coming. Hear the footsteps, he is coming. No drone or fighter jet from the US is going to be able to stop Christ as he comes back. Just swat them aside like flies. Saturn, Neptune, Jupiter, like putty in his hands. Poof, extinguishing the stars like you would a candle. He is mighty. He is massive. He's majestic. And it'll be terrifying to meet him as an enemy. So, so Micah weeps. You see, he's, in that sense, he's setting us an example. We don't triumph over the lost. We weep. We pray. That's what we see with Christ. God himself, incarnate, when he goes into Jerusalem, he is weeping over the judgment to come. Even though he is the one, as God, he will bring it. God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, as we're told in both Old and New Testaments. There's no joy in it. Why don't we, why are we cold, unmoved by the fate that is coming? Partly it's unbelief, isn't it? We just don't believe it's going to happen at some level. Partly it's because our God is too small. We have shrunk 
Jesus down. We sort of think it'll be okay in the world in the end, sorry, and we've isolated ourselves or insulated ourselves from the fullness of God's word. We, the lake of fire, we just only read that. Now, I don't think this means, Micah, is telling us that we, we, we just live our, our, live our whole lives sort of constantly frantic, any more than we're meant to live our whole lives stripped and naked, verse 8. Uh, Jesus was the most human man ever to have lived, and he clearly wasn't weeping all the time, but he was sometimes. Perhaps it's a New Year resolution. We need to weep more, lament more, certainly pray more for, for, for friends who are not yet safe, for leads, for those we know within or without the congregation, for neighbours, colleagues. And, and if we're not moved by those things, it's because we've got too small a view of God. We don't realise the scale of what is coming. We fail to hear the thump as he approaches. Weeping is one way Michael wants us to respond. And secondly, as we finish, he also wants to think about our worship, I think. We've not really thought yet about why God is coming particularly. In part, that's because there'll be more detail in the chapters to come, and I I don't want to overdo it in chapter one. But we do get hints. Look at verse five. Why is this happening? All this is for the transgression of Jacob, the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Literally, who is actually the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And then strikingly, what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? A high place is, is used in the Old Testament to describe somewhere a pagan shrine, an idol shrine. Where are the, where's idolatry happening? In Judah, says Micah. And what's the answer? Jerusalem. What's in Jerusalem? The temple. What? Where is everything going wrong? Right in the place where the people are meant to be able to come and meet Yahweh properly, be taught from his word by the priests. That is where idolatry is happening. The worship has become corrupt. The, the, the place where you meet God, hear about God, well, that is where idolatry sneaks in. It's not, as we'll see later in the book, they just rejected Yahweh. They're not saying oh, we don't believe in all that stuff anymore. It, these aren't, if you like, non-Christians in a complete kind of don't believe anything anymore. These are people who've brought idols into church. <coughs> uh, worship, church, can easily become uh, corrupted by the idols of the day. Uh, and that clouds our vision of God. Uh, again, we haven't got time to think about this too much this morning. But one small example, maybe this is a petty example, I don't know, one small example. Uh, it struck me recently, we, uh, I, I went, again, miles away from here, so you won't know where I was, <laughs> miles and miles away from here, uh, took two of the girls to the pantomime, two of my daughters to the pantomime uh, over Christmas, and um, uh, one of the things we had to do uh, in, during the pantomime, that was silly, obviously, uh, was they sang a song, they sang the 12 days of Christmas, and at different days, different parts of the, the audience had to stand up and sit down, the first day of Christmas, that was you stand up and you sing that, and you sit down, it's all a bit silly. Next day went to church, evangelical church, next day went to church, did exactly the same thing. Congregation was split into d- different parts. Different day, you had to stand up, sit down. Everyone laughing their heads off. Can you? Now look, in the pantomime, that's fine. <laughs> but, but, but in church, it's just silly. But I suspect these, these, are, these are good people. I suspect they thought, look, we just want to jazz church up, make it more fun. People want to be entertained. You believe in entertainment? Let's, let's, let, what can we do that's fun? In but, but it's impossible, I think, to move from that. Oh, everyone you know, laughing, how hilarious, five gold rings. 
God is coming in majesty to, you know, to, to, you just can't do it. Our worship, our gathering matters. The word must be at the center. And if we get it wrong, what if we get it wrong? Uh, Our view of God will just diminish. Uh, There's more in there in Michael 1, but we won't have time to see it uh, this morning. How big is your God? One last time, verse 3. Is he a God who will come down and crumple mountains? Who will tread on the Andes and they'll just be crushed like a Coke can? Uh, Who will smash up the Dales uh, with his little toe like it was an egg box? He is terrible in his judgment. But thankfully, that is not all he treads as we finish. Do you remember chapter 7? Let's end there. Uh, verse 3 of chapter 1, he treads the mountains underfoot. His foot is stamping down his judgment. But look at chapter 7. What is God like? He is, yes, a God who tramples evil underfoot. But also, chapter 7, verse 18, who is a God like you pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He is a God who forgives. He doesn't retain his anger forever because he delights in love. So what's he going to do? He's going to stamp again. Verse 19, he will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You, Michael addresses God, you will cast all our sins to the depths of the sea. At the cross, God showed both his anger at our sin, how serious it is. It cost the death of God's son. That's how angry God is at our sin. But also his immense love, he trampled our sins underfoot. And so they're in the bottom of the sea. If you've trusted Christ, you are safe from this judgment. It's the only place you can be safe. It's all you need to do. There's nothing else. I trust in him and your sins are trampled. That is good news to begin the year. You may need to increase the scale of your view of God. I think we all do. Of Christ, his majesty, his might. But that doesn't lead us to cower and fear and run from him. Rather, we run to him because he promises if we bring him our sin, he will trample it underfoot. It is gone and dusted. Smashed to smithereens. When God looks at you now, Christian, he doesn't see your sin. Children, imagine, have you ever been on a ferry, gone out into the, into the sea or a big ocean? Imagine writing all the things you've ever done wrong in your life on a piece of paper. Okay, you need lots of pieces of paper, wouldn't you? You're only little, so you know. Imagine wrapping them around a rock and throwing them over the edge of the boat, and they would just go down and down, miles down into the sea. That is what God has done with our sin. Completely gone. And when we believe that, we won't flee from him, but go to him. Revelation 1, John fell down dead. What did Jesus say? Do not fear, and picks him up. Yes, he is mighty and majestic. He is the Lion of Judah, but he is the Lamb who has paid for our sins. That is the picture of God that Micah wants us to believe and trust. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you that we have this word of Micah, that as he saw the heavenly vision, uh, he spoke. And we too, hundreds of years later, thousands of years later, can know and believe. Father, give us faith. We're sorry for when we've domesticated Christ, when we've had too low a view of our God. But we pray that you give us faith to see uh, not just uh, your purity and holiness and might and majesty, but also your immense love trampling our sins. Gone. So would we run to you, but run to you in reverence and awe and love. Open our eyes, we pray, to see 
our God. Amen.